0: Welcome, welcome back to Classic City Crime. I'm Cameron J, and here we are, y'all, already at episode 6 of the Tara Baker story. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you just how much information I've garnered over just this last week. But I have to be upfront and honest with you, searching for and gaining new information does not always come easy or without its setbacks or big disappointment. This is a sad reality I've learned in trying to find new answers in Tara's case. If you follow us on Facebook or Instagram, by the way, that's at Classic City Crime, you know I aired some Cameron frustrations over the lack of communication that I've received from current and former investigators who were close to Tara's case. Now, in full transparency, when I first contacted the police department about the podcast, it was before I had even conducted my first interview with the family. And I was initially told that the department handling the case was, quote, not opposed to participating. And you can only imagine how exciting this news was for me. Well, after a few follow-ups, I was told they were no longer able to participate. Now, I found this a bit odd, but I do try to understand, as you know, another former investigator emphatically agreed to do an interview just this week, reminding me that they would do, quote, anything to help with this case. Yet, one day later, the day they were going to interview, they decided they could no longer participate either. Now, like I've said over and over again in this podcast, I do try to be understanding of law enforcement's stance on this issue. This is an ongoing investigation, and there are details the police need to hold close to their chest. But I was hoping that maybe after 20 years, there might be some willingness to try a new method, to seek new answers, together. It's why I reached out to them from day one, and that was, it seems so far, wishful thinking. If you're listening, PD and former investigators, you know this, the invitation is always open, truly. Anyway, in episode 5 last week, we left off with letting you in on a huge detail in this case. Not only did the Baker family have to deal with contradictions and false promises from the police, but they also did not get a death certificate, declaring Tara legally dead until 10 years after her murder. Now, I worked in a funeral home for a couple of years, and death certificates are actually a huge part of the job. I've jokingly said before that the job is... 90% paperwork, but that may be a little bit of a stretch. Death certificates are a family's legal way of presenting the death of their loved one to interested parties, such as account holders and insurance companies. Sometimes they come back days after the death. Other times, especially in cases of foul play, they can take months. But 10 years? Now I can honestly say I've never heard of that. Well, that's exactly what happened to the bakers. 10 years of waiting. And why? Well, the police say they couldn't release the death certificate detailing her cause of death because this was a detail that only the killer would know. There's something important to keep in mind here, though. It's been nearly 20 years since Tara was killed, and details of her murder have leaked in the press over the years, and anyone that does a Google search or digs deep enough can find it. So it's not like that information hasn't been unofficially out there for quite some time. I understand their reluctance to issue this death certificate to protect the investigation, but I also have to understand the Baker family's true frustrations with yet another heartbreaking aspect of this case. Here's Tara's mom, Miss Virginia, talking about the fight for Tara's death certificate and the challenges that came along with it.
1: We kept having problems with accounts of hers being open still people using or well, one of them was a phone that was in her name it was in the apartment and people kept using it and then we would get you know overdue bills but it was in some somebody else was using it and we couldn't cancel any of these things because we didn't have anything saying she was dead so my husband just He just absolutely and demanded that if you can't give me a death certificate, give me a signed letter by the coroner that I can give to these people to close these accounts. And we finally got that. And what they put was multiple injuries.
0: So practically, what you're finding out here is that in March of 2001, the investigators did try to satisfy the Baker's search for their daughter's death certificate with a letter saying that they would hope that people would accept it in lieu of a death certificate. I was able to obtain that letter, and here's what it reads. Dear Mr. Baker, meaning Mr. Lindsey Baker, the purpose of this letter is to inform all interested parties of the death of Tara Louise Baker in lieu of an official death certificate. Miss Baker was pronounced dead at her residence on January 19th, 2001. The death certificate cannot be used at this time due to an active homicide investigation being conducted by the athens Clark County Police Department and assisting agencies. Due to the extreme circumstances surrounding Ms. Baker's untimely death, our office requests that all interested parties accept this letter in lieu of an official death certificate. It is further requested that all interested parties cooperate with the family and give them the utmost consideration. If I can be of further assistance, please contact me. Sincerely, Randy Garrett, Clark County Coroner.
1: Well, that's what they ended up putting on the death certificate, but that took 10 years to get that done. And every time we would contact the police, they said, oh, we can't do that because that would give away, you know, what happened to her. The Open Records Act would show that, and then we would have nothing to hold, you know, against the, you know, whoever killed the suspect. And I said, you're going to tell me that that's the only arrow you've got in your quiver? Hmm. And I said, just reword it or something.
0: So let me clarify something, Miss Virginia. You're saying that even after 10 years, once she received the death certificate, it still was not detailed as to how she died. No, it says
1: multiple injuries.
0: Wow. But you were eventually told about what happened to Tara besides the fire?
1: No, I was not told because I did not go to the meeting that my husband went to. He Mm -hmm. came home and told me and very gently, but let me know because he knew what I, I wanted to know but there are still questions i have in my mind and i uh, there are things i just i don't know yeah. i just don't know there were several different injuries which to me is consistent with overkill
0: i think she might just be right in that regard the fight for the death certificate wasn't something only affecting her parents, but it was also affecting the children, who saw just how hard this battle had become for their parents. Here's Sister Meredith.
2: They thought that if they
3: had made the cause of her death public knowledge, they it would substantially hurt their investigation. They said that that would only be the information that the suspect would know, and I don't know if you've ever tried to probate in a state without a death certificate, and I still don't know how my did it. Um, I mean, he would go, and the judge would say, well, we can't do this. You don't have a death certificate. He's like, well, they won't give me one. What do you want me to do?
0: That must must have really been devastating for your father. It
3: took 10 years, and it took my mother. She was up at the uh, state capitol for an event, and they were in the room you know, doing the the photo ops with Sonny Perdue. And when they were all done and everyone was just kind of standing around talking, she pulled him aside and she said, I need to tell you something and you need to help me. Hmm. And simultaneously, I'm on the phone with my dad and I'm like, tell me what you need me to do. So we typed up a letter together. I printed it out. And after work that day, I dropped it off in the coroner's mailbox. And my dad got a phone call the next day. So it took a phone call from Sunny Purdue and a letter in his mailbox saying, you have got to give us the death certificate. And if you go back and look in some of the papers and some of the interviews with the coroner and the police uh, investigators at the time, they say um, that the reporter asked him, can you just omit the cause of death or put something else on the death certificate, and they say, well, that's something we can look into. Mm. And that, to me, says in 10 years of us begging and asking, that hadn't crossed your mind yet? So, Why else would you say that? That's something we can look into, meaning they hadn't thought of that yet.
0: So your father was big in the fight for this death certificate, right?
3: Yes. He was the spokesperson of the family. I mean, he... I know everyone's heart is still broken, but, I mean, when we were kids, there was nothing he couldn't fix. He would somehow magically find Tara broken down somewhere between Lovejoy and Milledgeville on the way to school. And he would find her and come and fix her car. Mm. And now she was gone. There was nothing he could do. There was nothing he could fix anymore. And this was... You know, it's something he could put his hands on. This was something that he could fight for. He couldn't go and, and put on white gloves and run DNA tests with the police, but he was going to get this death certificate.
0: Hmm. And, w- and what year did you all finally receive that death certificate?
3: It was 2011, January 2011. Wow. And this was just one small victory. What um, like my dad used to say, you know, we buried her 10 years ago, and now we can bury her in paper.
0: I wanted to make sure to let Meredith speak to her father, Mr. Lindsey Baker's life, and dedication to finding answers in the investigation in her death. He was Tara's champion, and quite frankly, the family's champion, and though he was the stepfather of all the children, minus Kevin, he was nonetheless their father, their true father. In fact, Tara gifted him not long before she died with a last name change to Baker to show her appreciation for his love and his raising now that you know about the fight for tara's death certificate you can understand why it's taken me so long to tell you what happened there's so much to unpack in this case and there really are so many questions that remain unanswered when we come back we're going to put together a timeline from the information we've learned so far detailing tara's death the day of her murder, and the days and months that followed. We'll even have interview segments to confirm some of these details for you. And if you're a local Athenian, you know him, the man, the myth, the legend, the reporter himself, Joe Johnson. He's here to discuss what he came to know about the Baker family and about the case through the years. He'll also talk about the questions and people that still trouble him nearly 20 years later. This is Classic City Crime. We'll be right back. Hey, Mom, I miss you. How are you? Thanks for coming on the podcast. This is your first podcast. That's right. First of all, I just want to say that I'm super proud of you um, for bringing awareness to um, Sarah's Case. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It means a lot. Um, So one thing I'm bringing awareness to this week is diabetes, and I just wanted to reach out to you because you're a type 1 diabetic. When were you diagnosed? I was
4: diagnosed in 2002 at the age of 25.
0: And how has having diabetes affected your life, Mom?
2: Diabetes affects
3: each person differently. I guess the fact of knowing with type 1 that it's a long-term chronic condition and there's no really care for it, just happen to live with that every day knowing that, and of course by all means the fatigue that comes along with it.
0: Sure, and how important is it for people that have diabetes to seek care?
3: Oh, it's crucial for anybody with diabetes to have access and treatment and education as soon as possible.
0: That's why this week here at Classic City Crime, I'm encouraging all of our listeners to donate to the local Mercy Health Center, which does help people who are needing care for diabetes get access to the treatment that they need. To donate, visit mercyhealthcenter.net or give them a call at 706-425-9445. Thanks again to my parents. It makes me so happy to have their support in this journey of telling Tara's story. Welcome back. I want us to now go over this timeline piece by piece together, and much of it we've uncovered as the investigation has really gone on. This timeline was crafted through speaking with sources, reading old news articles, reviewing the released incident reports, and talking on and off the record with some of those who were closest to Tara back in 2001. Her family, her friends, her classmates. Here's what we know about the last days of Tara's life, and I encourage you to grab your paper and pen or open your notes app, and let's begin. Let's begin with the week of Tara's death, Monday, January 15th, 2001. Tara Baker and a friend who was close to her at the local Athens law firm where she worked before starting law school had a hangout at Tara's home at 160 Fawn Drive. The friend and source who spoke off the record says everything seemed in order at Tara's home and in her life that evening. They were looking forward to celebrating Tara's birthday on that Friday night. And that's Monday, Tuesday, January 16th, 2001. This same friend left their sunglasses at Tara's home on Monday, so Tuesday, Tara went by the law firm to return the item and to solidify some plans about meeting up with her law firm co-workers and friends on Friday, January 19th, 2001. They were going to be meeting up downtown to grab some drinks because, as you'll remember, that upcoming Saturday, Tara Baker was turning 24. Tara also went into a lawyer's office and met with him that afternoon, according to the source. On Wednesday, January 16th, 2001, Tara calls and speaks to her mother, Miss Virginia, for the last time. She mentioned several odd things during this call, according to her mother, a classmate who was weirding her out, and several classmates have confirmed that this was an issue, and a coworker who might have interest in her. We now come to January 18th, 2001, a Thursday, the day before Tara Baker was murdered. Now, according to a source, the same friend and source who went by Tara's home on Monday, they emailed back and forth throughout the day, and nothing seemed to be going wrong. Miss Virginia recalls that someone somewhere throughout the investigation mentioned that they might have seen Tara early in the afternoon at the Kroger buying groceries for what looked like a guest who might be arriving. They said the cart, or if you're from the South like me, the buggy, indicated that she might be expecting company. I have still not located this witness, so if you're listening, you know what to do. Give me a call. Give me an email. Let's talk about this. We're still on Thursday here. Roommate Ashley Peavy is out of town, and roommate Valerie Lang left town in the evening after a class to visit a friend and to go to a parent's home on Friday. Now, that leaves Tara Baker's home at 160 Fond Drive, empty but for her. On Thursday evening, Tara, Katie, and Eugenia, who you heard from in episode two and who were Tara's classmates, and in the same section, were all studying in the University of Georgia's Law Library. Now, this is located on North Campus, and it's just a hop, a jump, and a skip away from Broad Street, the lively downtown scene. Now, Katie and Eugenia left the library, and here's a quick reminder about what happened from there on from Katie.
2: Thursday night, uh, you know, it's... Still, the beginning of the semester, so we didn't have a ton of work, but we were in the library pretty late. Uh, Tara and I were, um, and we were working on a paper of some kind that was due. Um, and I just remember her computer was had this really loud fan, and it would always really disrupt the quiet room. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> she would sort of wave at it and like shush it, which was just silly. But that was her thing, and it was really funny. Um, and uh, and I did what I always did which was she stayed longer and I was like no this is good enough I'm going to go home it's 10 o'clock at night I don't feel like being here um, so she said the same thing she always said which was make sure I call her when I got home which of course I did not uh, and so she forgot um, and then she called me about I don't know 11 um, probably been about an hour and fussed at me And that was it. That was the last time I spoke
0: to her. Now, I did reach out to Katie again this week as I was trying to get my timeline exactly right, as accurate as possible for you. And in our interview, she did say that she leaves at 10 and gets a call at 11. In our follow-up text, she did admit that it could have been closer to around 9 and that she got a call from Tara around 10. So Katie did say that she believed Tara was still at the library when she called her at 10 or 11 based on the sound of the quality of that call. Again, nothing seemed off in that last known phone call, other than Katie probably getting in a small bit of trouble for forgetting to call Tara to let her know she'd made it home safely. At some point, we can assume that Tara did in fact go home. The question in my mind remains, did someone come over, and if so, who, when? There's one detail I have learned that I want to share with all of you. The source and friend who's been mentioned in this timeline several times confirmed to me that they missed a call from Tara Baker the night of Thursday, January 18th, 2001, 11 o'clock p.m., which we can assume was after Tara called Katie Lonstein, her friend that was studying with her at the library. I asked what the source and friend thought about the call, what they thought it might have been for, and they responded that it haunts them to this day. Was she calling for help, for advice on a situation that could have changed the outcome? Well, the source and friend says they still have an electronic device that proves the validity of this call and that it has at some point been turned over to police. And so, that's Thursday. Little did anyone know the tragedy that awaited them on Friday, January 19th. A drizzly January day here in the Classic City. At 160 Fond Drive, something was wrong. Very wrong. And signs began to point in that direction from the start. Friday, January 19th, 2001. There was an addition to the timeline that actually came in the night before this episode was released, and that was that the source, the friend that I keep mentioning, they actually tried to call Tara the morning of January 19th, 2001, prior to her getting ready for class, prior to the time she was supposed to be there, returning the call that they missed. Of course, Tara never answered that call. At 9.30 a.m., classmates confirm Tara misses class. This is the same class she mentioned to her mom in that phone call. Most sources confirm that while this was unusual for any 1L and for Tara herself to miss a class, that she might have been out for her birthday and thought this might have been why she wasn't there so they had no idea that she had been attacked, much less killed. At around 11.20 a.m., a 911 call is placed about smoke coming from 160 Fawn Drive and according to the police incident report released through my open records request, an officer responded to the scene at 11. 25 a.m. By 1130, the fire department arrives on scene to extinguish the fire, and at some point shortly thereafter, the scene is turned over to the athens Clark County Police Department's Criminal Investigations Division. What we've come to learn about that day is Tara was attacked in her home. Her room lit on fire by an item ignited by the stove and returned to Tara's bedroom, a stove that firefighters actually found all four burners still going on, You'll all remember Tom Sr., the arson investigator that we spoke to last week and his help to better try and understand when the fire might have actually started. One detail the family did share with me is that the time investigators gave them for the time of ignition was related to a clock that had burned, fallen off the wall, and stopped at a specific time, between 10 and 11 a.m., we believe. But our arson expert does acknowledge that this is not really reliable because you would have to be able to estimate the growth rate of the fire and you would have to also assume that the time was set correctly before the fire began. To try and better understand the timeline, I did reach out to Tom and his son, Tommy Jr., to find out what they thought about this timeline and when the fire could have started, and they did thank me for all of your kind words. Here's what I learned from our conversation regarding the fire and its timeline based on new details I've learned since the last time we spoke. Now, you'll have to remember that Tom and his son, who are experts in this field, live in Texas, and we're in Georgia, so there is a bit of a time difference, and we often communicate by email. Here's a few of the thoughts that they sent me initially, and I will try to delve into these more in detail later. 1. A stovetop, given there isn't a thermal safety switch, can certainly ignite common combustibles. That being said, it would need to be in a medium to high setting, and it would unlikely be in the low setting. The type of element would also make a difference in the ignition time. Depending on the temperature setting and the element type, ignition could occur between 2 to 13 minutes. These values are derived from a series of tests conducted at EKU using common combustibles on stovetops. They used a cotton dish rag for reference, which would have reasonably similar results to something that might have been used to set Terra's room on fire. 2. If the stovetop was used to ignite something, then there should be evidence of that on the stovetop. Remnants of the item, charred areas on the surface of the stove, soot deposits, etc. 3. The timeline is a bit tricky here. Let's say someone took a flaming item into the room and placed it on the bed. You're more than likely going to have a large fire fairly quickly unless they shut the door and the available oxygen was used up. Thanks again, Tom. You'll also recall that the crime scene was contaminated by water damage, smoke damage, and was, by most accounts, not secured immediately and properly. We're still on Friday, the day Tara was murdered here on the timeline, so stay with me. The Baker family is called to Athens that evening, only knowing a fire had occurred at Tara's home. Now, when they arrived, you know of the shocking and, quite frankly, disrespectful way they were informed of Tara's death and the fact that foul play was suspected. We also now know that Tara's roommates, who had initially left town, and her boyfriend, who was not local, were at the police station that night being questioned. Now moving on to Saturday, January 20th, 2001. Roommate Ashley Peavy, who you heard from in episode 2, walks the scene with investigators. Sunday, January 21st, 2001. Just two days after Tara was murdered in Deer Park, get this, her family and her roommates are allowed to enter the scene to gather their belongings. The family and others have acknowledged that this seemed rather fast for them, and it seems a little fast to me too. So I reached out to Tom again about this, asking if this was normal for crime scenes to be released back to families and roommates so quickly. As for this detail about the crime scene processing and how quickly crime scenes should be turned back over to families, Tommy Jr. said it's all really relative to the crime scene processing and the amount of time that takes. It makes me wonder what could have been found if it had just been left as it was on January 19, 2001, for just a bit longer. On January 24, 2001, Tara Baker's funeral is held and her body is laid to rest with her family believing, remember, DNA evidence had been collected based on the statements made to them by investigators the night of her murder. The funeral was attended by our former guest and former Athens mayor, Doc Eldridge, and investigator David Griffith. We have exclusive audio from this service, actually, and it's a heartbreaking one indeed. You know that I've heard hundreds, and I'll say that as someone who has sat through many memorialization services, this one will get you, and we'll be sharing some of that audio in due time. After the funeral, things really do go silent for a few months. And then, on March 2nd, 2001, a press conference is held announcing a get this $26,000 reward for answers leading to an arrest in Tara's shocking murder. Now, this was the result of Baker family contributions, university contributions, private donors, and even contributions from the landlord of the property where she was killed. We know now from newspapers that going on to 2002, some GBI agents convened in Athens to apparently look at the case, and I cannot find any record of anything that might have come from that. Finally, on November 8th, 2002, police released that very important detail. A laptop was stolen from Tara's home, and that a witness claims to have seen a white male running through the rain in a white t-shirt and blue jeans on that day. Now, this could have allowed the public to better assist in the investigation had it been released early on, But on November 8th, 2002, that's the day they decided it might could finally help. One update I have for you, I have been speaking with someone who claims to have knowledge of where the laptop might have ended up and whose hands it was in. So far, the sources do seem to be checking out, and I'll keep you updated as that develops. Now, after that announcement from police about the laptop and the witness statement, the investigation once again goes fairly quiet here, with a few news articles here and there honoring Tara on the anniversary of her death and usually acknowledging the lack of progress on the case. That is, until Courtney Gale at the police department took on the case in around 2006-2007. It was at this time the Baker family finally really felt that life was breathed into Tara's case once again, but that was short-lived. In an unrelated incident, Gail was attacked in Athens, never returning to the case again. So here we are in 2020. This podcast is now in motion, and we're just a few months away from the 20th year since Tara Baker was murdered on January 19th, 2001. And this is the timeline I've been able to piece together along with the family, weeks of interviews, and yes, investigating. Which is actually something I never thought I would do, but this investigation continues every single day. You've also heard several new people mentioned here in this timeline, and that's for good reason. And at Classic City Crime, I'm close to exploring all of them and each of those theories with you. But first, there's one key man in Athens, Georgia, whose former reporting on this case really helped me be able to learn more about Tara's case and help piece together parts of the timeline I've presented for all of you. His name? Joe. Joe Johnson. He began reporting on the case when he moved to Athens in 2003. And while nearly 20 years have passed since Tara was killed, Joe, who now suffers from a condition which does impair his speech, wanted to speak out and speak to me exclusively about this case and what he came to learn.
4: Newspapers like to do anniversary pieces when there's a high-profile high profile homicide. So that's how I, I I initially got into it, by doing anniversary pieces. Over, over that time, I developed relationships with uh, Tara's parents, Lindsay in Virginia, and Virginia, and her sister Meredith. And we, we have conversations that had nothing to do with the story, just checking up on each other.
0: I was really glad that Joe reached out and agreed to interview because one thing I was curious to know from him is whether or not he, like me, felt that investigators were always very closed off about this case. And, you guessed it, he agrees.
4: And, uh, you know, this is not unique to athens Clark Police, but they're very protective of their cases. And and you can't, you, you can't dispute the fact that they want to keep certain things confidential that only the, the offender would know you, know, you know what I'm saying? I think they could have let out more information earlier that could have led to more leads or more suspects. They just seemed more protective about this case than any other that I came upon in, in Athens.
0: Why do you think that was?
4: I don't know. Maybe, maybe because it was so high profile. It was national news. You know, a pretty young UGA law student slain in her own home, home. I mean, all people knew prior to you know me digging digging into it was well, she, she was killed in a house fire. It was always the same big responses. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't even confirm the information that I got from investigators that retired or gave me stuff off the record. It would never confirm anything. And like I said, the people of Athens, they just thought she died and she was killed in a, in a house fire. I mean, they did not know that she was strangled she was beaten and stabbed. I mean, then her, then her house set on fire. I mean, it was, it was vicious. And I think people of Athens would have been up in arms if they knew about that early on.
0: Now, it's interesting. Joe was actually one of the people who got the Baker family in touch with Dr. Henry Lee, the world renowned forensic scientist you heard me mention that looked at the case after a few years. And he confirmed what Miss Virginia had already told us about. His help was not seemingly welcomed by the local police department.
4: The bakers did connect with him, you know, at my urging. And Dr. Lee, he offered his assistance free of charge, and the police refused. You know, boggle my mind. I think they, they had some kind of conditions. Even though he'd be checking over the case for the bakers, he would have to only
0: work with them
4: and not reveal
0: anything to
4: outsiders,
0: you know. And did he did he do that work um, and report to them only?
4: He didn't agree to it. I guess the conditions were too constraining for him.
0: I had to ask Joe, with all the digging, reporting, interviews that he's conducted over the last few years, did he have anyone that he thought might be involved? And he did have a few things to say about that.
4: The boyfriend, you know, they they said they ruled him out. They thought the boyfriend, you know, they're from a, a very small town called Lovejoy. Cara was now hit town Athens and her her, her social universe is expanding and she was running with some, you know, high pollutant people. So I thought he was a pretty good suspect. Mm-hmm. The police said that he passed polygraph and that he did have a verified out by the um, classmate. They never did interview him, at least not to my knowledge. I don't understand why that is. People knew New Tower, like, I mean, they said that this guy was really creepy. And, and you could tell he had like kind of a thing for Tara. I'm not sure how far they went with that avenue. The the lawyer in the firm where she interned, he moved out of state and I, I, I tracked him down. And when I tried to speak to him on the phone, he found out while I was calling, he hung up on me immediately.
0: Joe mentions three people that the investigation initially focused on, and these are theories that any of you could have found by digging through local newspaper archives. So nothing that I am discussing currently is new here, but I believe the investigation really began with where it should, with any law student, with the people she loved and those who loved her, with those she went to school with, and yes, those Tara worked with. That's seemingly the smart place to look, and I'll give investigators credit for that. As we move forward in this podcast, I want you to remember a very, very important thing. While there are several people who I believe and some people believe could have killed Tara, there are also several people in that group who are very innocent. And it's important for me to note that to all of you. I think it's important for the family as well. There's a fine line for us to walk here moving forward, and I ask you to join me in that respect. Certain names and details moving forward might be changed to protect the investigation, certain individuals, and their families. So we know one thing, classic city crime, Someone did kill Tara Baker on January 19th, 2001. And as I've said before, the circle of possibilities, the theories, they all began to circle in Athens, in the classic city, not long after Tara's case hit the news. You've already heard from Joe Johnson, and he's mentioned a few. I asked Miss Virginia if she had anything she'd want to know from the killer, if they were listening. And she issued a mother's plea. If you could say one thing to the person who did this, what would you say?
1: Why? That's all I've ever wanted to know. Why? What did she do that was so horrible Mm -hmm. that she had to die? And I know that's more than one thing, but I also want to know who thought they had the right to cut off a limb on the family tree like that? Who had the right to take this precious gem from this family? Mm -hmm. I... I, (laughs) The why is my, has always been my biggest question.
4: Right, right.
1: I cannot in any way come up with a why unless it was a rejection and there was something crimi- incriminating on that computer. I've even gotten a copy of phone records and scoured those myself. I have done – I called and interviewed some of her friends, someone who ran into her, I think, the day before in the parking lot of a Kroger.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I asked them, do you remember what was in her buggy? So I could see, was she expecting anybody, you know? Mm. I, I I've done everything I could think of and then some.
0: Right. So if you were listening and you know who did this or you might be the one who did – I want you to hear again Miss Virginia's plea. W-H-Y-Y. Who were the key players in Tara's life? Who knows the answer to the why? Where did investigators go in regards to suspects, and who did they talk to? And where is our own investigation here starting to lead? We'll explore very carefully several theories and people next time on Classic City Crime. Thanks for tuning in. Classic City Crime is hosted by me, Cameron Jay, co-produced and designed by Kyle Kazaya. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Classic City Crime. Sign up for our Classic City Crimes insider list and learn more about this case at ClassicCityCrime.com. For story tips on the Tara Baker story, email us at ClassicCityCrime at gmail.com or call our tip line at 706-534-0025.